0: Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. Hey, uh, thank you so much for, for saying hi to somebody. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor. It's really, really good to be with you this morning, and I, it's really good to have the sun out. Uh, if you didn't know that, the sun is out. It's, it's uh, shocking and wonderful and surprising. Uh, I had a really good friend uh, get, get married yesterday and uh, decided to do an outside wedding. So um, yeah, you know, it can only get better. I mean, marriage can only get better. Start there. And then, and so, uh, yeah, Hey, uh, so good to be with you. Thanks for, thanks for being here. And, and again, uh, that's just so fun to talk about what God's doing at, uh, in the midst of the lives of college students in our midst, in our city and in our church. And, and then also with a, with a really difficult news that, that, uh, uh Concordia University is, is closing and all of that. And so, uh, thanks for joining uh, together and, and praying for, uh, for all of that uh, this morning. It's, it's so important. And so just, yeah, when crazy big news happens like that, it's very disorienting. And so we've got students and alumni and faculty and, and staff that are, are impacted by that within the life of our church. And uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's been a hard week in that, in that way. Um, if you don't have a Bible, find a Bible. Feel free to grab one on the side here. Um, we're going to be in 1 uh, Corinthians this morning. Um, but before we, we get there, would you, uh, would you stop with me just for a moment and, and pray? Let's go to God together and ask him to, to guide us and lead us as we go to Scripture. God, again, we just want to stop and ask you to, to be present with us. Uh, we uh, gather here uh, to meet with you. Uh, to hear from you, uh, to be directed by you, uh, to stand in awe of you, uh, to be reminded of, of who you are and who we are, and that you love us and that you've extended grace to us, that you see us, that you know us, that you never leave us, uh, that you hold everything that we can see and know and experience and imagine. You hold it all within your hands, and it's never outside of, of your sight and your control and your power. And so, God of the universe, we worship you here in this place, in this moment, this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask, as we've already sung, that you would you would come and move in this place and that we would be changed because you're here, uh, that you would awaken our hearts in new ways, that you would sharpen our minds this morning, that you would comfort our souls, uh, that you would do what only you can do in this place. And Jesus, we declare that you are our King and our Savior and our Redeemer that you came to us here, that you lived, that you were executed on the cross, that you were crucified, you were buried, and that you rose again. And as our living King, would you now direct us as we look to your word? It's in your name that we pray. Amen the heart is where jesus begins his revolution that's been the title of our series and we've moved through this for a number of, of weeks now and we'll continue to uh, up until holy week and the the hope and the desire and where how god led us was that we would actually look uh, deep within who we are, to the very core of who we are. As the Bible talks about the heart, it's, it's got a very specific uh, idea in mind, and, and we can have a lot of different ideas of what the heart is. Scripture talks about the heart as the very core of our identity, the very core of, of who we are. It includes our will. Uh, if you've never thought much about your will, it actually has to do with your power, my power, your power. You have the power, we have the power to make decisions, to act, to move. That actually comes from our heart. Scripture says it this way in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it everything flows in your life. So who you are, what you decide, how you go, how you interact with others, how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see others, it all is generated in some sense from our heart, the very core of who we are. Not the organ that pumps blood, although that's where the, the ancient idea came from, understanding that life flows from it physically, biologically, but that are deeper than that, the very core of, of who we are in our person, that part that can't be contained just by the physical body that we, we have. And so scripture, the Bible talks about the heart It's the core of who we are. And we've been talking about that for a number of weeks. And a couple of weeks ago, we asked the question of if, if, our, if our heart and our, our longing and our desire and our will directs our life, and God says that he wants to come after that first because that's more of who we are than anything else, and he loves us, then how do we begin to direct our our hearts towards Him. It's actually a, a supernatural thing that, that Jesus would capture our hearts. But what's our role in that? How can we play a role in that? And last week we looked at just saying that part of it is being open to the Holy Spirit working our lives. And, and this week I want us to look at a situation um, a, a, a people, a, a few people, a group of people, a young church got off track at a very key place in their life in regards to their heart, that their heart started to get divided that it started to have multiple things to go after, that its power was divided, and it started, it knew Jesus at one time, and then started to look at other places beyond Jesus. And so in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, was actually a letter written by a guy, Paul, in the second chapter, if you haven't found your way there, find your way there, First chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, Paul is uh, writing to, he spent a year and a half with uh, some young believers in the city of Corinth. And he's now writing a letter back to them, and he's saying, hey, um, I, there's some very important things I want you to know because you've started to get off track in some ways. And if you know anything about Corinth, with, which maybe you don't, but if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it, it's just a ton of crazy stuff going on in there, and that's because the city of Corinth is a pretty crazy city. And Paul is writing to these, this church, these followers of Jesus, who are living in this really wild city. And he, he has this, this warning for them. Don't get off track in this way. Corinth is a, uh, a city that's at a crossroads of both uh, shipping lanes and, um, and travel lanes by land. And it's, it's at this crossroads where, where these, these uh, goods come from all over the world and pass through Corinth. And so they've got, got a taste of the world and they pride themselves on being cosmopolitan, of, of seeing and knowing a lot about the world because of the trade route that runs through Corinth. Um, they're highly educated. And they pride themselves on wisdom and philosophy and rhetoric and those kinds of things. And, and being able to talk in the public square and debate and those kinds of things. It's a uh, Greek uh, city under the, the rule of Rome. And so it's got both those uh, high politics and, and high wisdom and philosophy combined together. Um, they, they think of themselves very highly. But they're also very, very wild. And they pride themselves on that too. So it's a city where anything goes. And experimentation and exploring pleasure is just celebrated, and that's just a key part of the city. And so if you can imagine being a follower of Jesus, where Jesus has something more to say about who we are that overruns everything else, that goes deeper than who we are, to shift out of being a normal person in Corinth to being a follower of Jesus is very challenging, and Paul's writing to that. Chapter 2 says this, first five verses, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power." So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul, Paul shows up in Corinth, and he's, he's coming to Corinth from another city. Uh, and he's coming from a city called Athens, which we've, we've all heard of. A historic city, um, still there today, uh, still influential even in today, and, and all the more so then. And he's come from Athens, and he's not had an easy time in Athens. Athens has been very, very difficult for him. It's similar to Corinth in many ways. And, and he's tried to, to debate, and he's tried to reason, and he's tried to use his exceptional skills of rhetoric. And, and Paul himself is this educated guy. He's, he's born a Hebrew, but he's born in a, in a Greek city, and he's a Roman citizen. And so he's kind of had the lay of the land of all of it, he, and he's privileged in that sense, that he's been educated that he's had many opportunities, and he rose quickly in his own ethnicity. And as a Jew, he rose quickly and was an influential. He was a, what's known as a Pharisee at a young age, kind of the youngest of the whole crew. And they looked to him because he was so exceptionally gifted. And he started out early in his career persecuting the church and trying to kill Christians. And the reason he was doing that is because they were following Jesus. And having studied the, the Torah and the Old Testament, he knew Jesus is is not God by his belief. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Um, he's in the midst of Pursuing and trying to kill Christians, and Jesus shows up and says, Hey, these are my people, please stop. Or, or something along those lines. Paul meets Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up and talks to Paul. And Paul's life changed is 180 degrees. It goes in completely the other direction. And he gives up his post as this influential Pharisee, and he goes against everything that he had been saying, not everything, but many things that he had been saying before and say, No, Jesus is actually the real deal. He showed up and he told me so. And so here's this highly educated person, highly influential, way beyond his years in influence already as a young man. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away from all that because I've encountered Jesus, I've met Jesus personally, and so I'm going to follow Jesus. And then he starts traveling around, no longer as an influential educator and teacher and, and spiritual leader, but as a tent maker, making tents, that's how he's making a living, and telling people in new city after new city after new city about Jesus and saying, hey, Follow Jesus. He's alive. He's real. He's the Messiah. And so these churches would form, and he would go from city to city. Coming from Athens, that didn't go well for him. He was leaving kind of beat up. He arrives at Corinth and meets a couple people, and they come to faith, and then a couple more, and they form this young church in Corinth. And after 18 months, he leaves, and the church goes on, and he writes back because he hears that they're struggling, and he says this to him. He says, hey, remember when I showed up there? I didn't show up and, and impress you with all of the ways that I can talk. He says, I didn't use my great great skills of rhetoric and wisdom and philosophy and engage you in that way. I didn't, um, I didn't use eloquence or human wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. And he says, I resolved to know nothing, nothing. I, I, I knew nothing except this, this one most important thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and twem- trembling. So uh, a man who is used to, to having his way with words, of saying things and people responding, of seeing God work, of knowing the answers, all of a sudden he shows up I, and I'm in fear and trembling. I'm, I'm not the strong person and man that I was before. I got beat up pretty good in, in Athens. And so he, he arrives and says, I, I stripped away everything. And I got down to the very core and what's at the very core of what I had to offer you. The only thing I had to offer you was Jesus Christ and him crucified and also resurrected. But I actually am offering you something that people don't talk about in mixed company. It's not polite to talk about execution. It's not polite to talk about the, 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 the details and the tactics and the physical experience of a person being executed through crucifixion. We don't, we don't talk about that in mixed company. That's the only thing I had left to bring. I, I brought the story of a, of a man being executed, but not just being executed on the cross, but the conquering death and, and rising again. That's the only thing I had to offer. And in so doing, he shows up to Corinth, and he does everything counter to what was expected of him. If you want to show up in Corinth, and you want to be influential... Start partying. You'll be one of us. We'll we'll listen to you. We'll pay attention to you. Show up at midday in the town square and debate and beat some of our our go-to guys in the city. Hang with them and then we'll listen to you. Have a new idea for a cult or a religion or pull pull an ancient God and bring him back into discussion and say we should follow him and give us all the reasons why and debate in public and then we'll follow you. That's what's expected of somebody that shows up in a new town and wants to start a new cult and have a following. And Paul doesn't do any of those. He goes against how they were used to being catered to. He goes against what was expected of him. And what he does offer them, in verse 4 it says, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. All that Paul offers them is, this is what God did in my life. I was headed this way. Jesus showed up and said, hey, these are my people. Stop persecuting them. And by the way, this is who I am. And I met Jesus personally. And he changed my life dramatically. And then I went and told some other people about him. And look what happened there. And then we prayed and God did some miracles. And beyond my ability as an orator and as an educated man, God showed up and did amazing things. And so I'm going to point to what God's done, God's power. And I'm going to tell you about that. And if that somehow sinks through your mind into your heart and you become a changed person, then that's just further evidence of Jesus is alive and is working. What the young church in Corinth was doing was saying, Jesus has captured our hearts and we've been changed and we've formed a church and we're pursuing him and we're trying to live differently than the rest of Corinth. And yet that's really hard. And so we're drifting back into what we've known before, and we're pulling in some human wisdom because we still want some street cred with our friends in our city. And so we're debating with the old things and we're thinking about and we're reading the old things. And some of them are actually participating in some of the old ways that they used to live and not living distinctly as followers of Jesus any longer. And Paul is writing to them to begin to tell them, hey, you've drifted. Come back to the one thing that we share and that we know and that really matters. And that's when you strip away everything else about your life that is at the very core of who you are, your identity is the person of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul says, do you remember how that's the only thing I offered to you and that's what, what changed you and how you were different? It's, it's easy for us to see the parallels in our own city. We, we live at a crossroads. We live at major shipping lines in our city, both on land and in sea, and rail lines. Um, we, as portland vancouver metro area um, pride ourselves on experimentation and exploring pleasure and doing whatever it is that we want or can dream up of doing that's that's the water that we swim in here there's a a high cost and calling to living as a follower of jesus that says no to much of the water that we swim in to live a, a different kind of life I uh, I read a couple quotes in in uh, this past fall. We we taught through the book of First uh, Peter uh, last fall, and, and I and I read a a couple little excerpts from a book that was called um, Faith for Exiles, and the subtitle of the of the book is uh, Five Ways a New Generation for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. And, and that sounds really cool. Let me explain what it means. Um, so in case you want to use it, you'll actually know what you're talking about. Um, five ways for a new generation to follow Jesus in digital. Babylon, Babylon is uh, a reference to uh, a city in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's, it's a contrast between Jerusalem. Babylon belonged to the Assyrians and, and they were a powerful people. And, and Jerusalem belonged to the, the Hebrews, the people of God. And, and they lived in relationship with God, but then when they betrayed God and walked away from him and re- worshiped other gods, God said, There's natural consequences for that. And one of those is that my blessing won't be on you and I won't protect you. And these other people came in and take over, the Assyrians come in and, and take over Jerusalem and Israel as a whole. And one of their strategies for how they would take over a people is that they would take kind of the, the, the most promising young adults in the city at that time in Jerusalem and they would take them back to Babylon. And they would give them all of these privileges. And they at the same time they would imprison them. So there's, you know, a, a cost to that. They weren't free. But they got a nice flat downtown. They got the highest education. They got the best food. Uh, they get the best opportunities on the weekends. They were in, in this in Babylon. They weren't free to leave, but but they got kind of the best of the best. And the idea was that they would so enculturate them into their own values and ways of thinking that these talented promising young adults would grow up into influential people in Babylon, and then they would send them back into their own culture, and they would lead in a way that Babylon wants them to lead, not in the way that God wanted them to lead. Daniel is the story of this in the Old Testament, one of the stories. And so when it says digital Babylon, what it's referring to is the world that we now live in is a digital Babylon in that we live in in an age of technology that is constantly enculturating and influencing us in certain ways that we may or may not see technology is phenomenally helpful for humanity and for the world. And at the same time, it can also be very damaging and dangerous. We know this. We might not be fully aware of just how influential it is. And so, it's one of the key identifiers of of the world that we live in going forward is influenced by uh, by technology and the digital realities that we live in now. And so, that's what it means when it says digital Babylon. I, I want you to listen to this and it's a little bit of a, of a few quotes that I want to string together, but it, it paints for us a helpful and sobering picture of not, of not of Corinth, but of Portland, Vancouver in 2020, and some of the challenges on our own identity. As, as Paul is calling them to, if you strip away everything, the core of who you are is, is Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected, that the gospel has shaped us, that that becomes our identity as followers of Jesus, and there's a lot of competition for that. Listen to this. Um, Screens inform and connect, but they also distract and entertain. Through screens' ubiquitous presence, Babylon's, again, digital Babylon's, pride, power, prestige, and pleasure colonize our hearts and minds. Pop pop culture is a reality filter. Websites, Websites, apps, movies, TV, video games, music, social media, YouTube channels, and so on, increasingly provide the grid against which we test what is true and what is real. We, we know that, right? All of the influences that we have at our fingertips, at, our, at, our, at the ready, at all times, we know that that influences us in, in one way or another. If, if you don't, look at your purchase history. The media and the messages blur the boundary between truth and falsehood. What is real is up for grabs you 've no doubt heard the, heard the terms like truthiness, fake news, post truth, and alternative facts. All these contests to define reality are features of the current Babylonian landscape. Screens demand our attention screen's disciple we we know this i'm not I'm not telling us anything new we know that we're influenced and to attach the word disciple to it is Is really it stings a little bit, but it's so helpful because it shapes our thinking. And 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 now it it can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil. And it also can be used in a way that we're not even aware. Uh, And again, sorry, this isn't up on the screen, but just they do some statistics on 15 to 23 year olds, Uh, 15 to 23 years. So that eight-year span of life, hugely significant season of life. Um, Roughly 2,700 hours. A, uh, a year, 2,700 hours a year, are used on some kind of digital input or, or influence, that we're on technology in some way. 27, so just uh, that's uh, around a quarter of, of a year, a little, little less than a third, a little, little more than a quarter. Um, so think about that a little over six hours a day, uh, that's what that averages to. Um, and you're like, oh, Wow, great. Does that make me between 15 and 23? Because I'd use that much. But um, no, that's just 15 and 23 year olds. You might fall in that. That doesn't necessarily mean you're that old. Um, how much of that is, is spiritual influence or spiritual content or how to compare that to spiritual content is uh, 291 hours per year for somebody in that age range who's actually engaged in the life of a church. That's not a lot of hours. For someone who's not engaged in the life of a church, who wouldn't even identify themselves as a particular follower of any kind of faith or religion, and certainly not Jesus, it's even half of that. So if six hours or more a day, a little over six hours a day is is used on on some kind of digital influence, less than 10% of that is actually on some kind of spiritual content that's pointing uh, to Jesus. Much more could be said, but at the, the point is this. We are on the front end of a digital revolution that is tinkering with what it means to be human. We're the front end of a digital revolution that's tinkering on what it means to be human. If you think about that for a moment, and, and, and we know this, and, and, and maybe you spend a lot of time reading and thinking about this and experiencing this. Maybe this is your, your area of expertise and your, and your vocation and your work in this. But if we think about how technology is coming closer and closer to our very identity of who we are, that we wear it on ourselves more we're engaged with it more it's it's influencing the way that we see things more and more we know this is true but to say it in those terms a digital revolution that is tinkering with what it means to be human we know that we view the world largely through screens now more than ever before and it's only rapidly increasing that affects how we view ourselves it affects our very identity one more When we consider our identity as followers of Jesus in relation to this, another digital Babylon distinctive is that being different and unique, reflected in the oft-repeated mantra, you do you, is among the highest priorities in the quest for identity. Our society deifies the individual's search for self-expression. Ironically, however, most of us end up looking like the crowd we want to be part of the apparent value placed on self-expression is actually driven by someone else's preferences. Even when we think we're marching to our own beat, we've got an unseen drummer in our heads keeping time and making claims on our identity. Not to take away, some of you are just so absolutely unique and creative. No, I mean, you are, right? I mean... I would like to think I am, and then I realize I'm wearing a blue shirt with gray jeans and boots. So I look like a third of the people that I see in a given week. So I I just have to admit, I'm not particularly unique. I have some friends who are very creative and unique, and um, I do, I look at them, I go, I wish I could be more like you. I wish I could do you. I mean, I wish I could be creative and and distinct like that, and that's just not, that's just not me. But the fact is, and we we know this, is that our ideas are shaped by what we see around us and what we look around us. And the reality is, is that in our day and age now, in the reality in which we live, gets inside of us and it can shape us. And it's to the beat of a different drummer within our head that actually is beginning to shape our identity. The truest thing about humans is what our creator says about us. That we are created with essential worth and dignity as children crafted in his image, and that following his son, Jesus, restores his image in us, which was broken as a result of human rebellion. That our call that is absolutely against the grain of our day and age is who we are, what we are, and why we're valuable. The best message of that is from the God of the universe, not from those around us that look like us or that we want to look like or that are giving us messages about where we've come from and where we're headed and who we are. Those are in contrast and in conflict with what Jesus says about us. And we live in a day and age that we know is seeking to define who we are and tell us that we're unique because we decide we're unique and we get to decide who we are. And God has something very different about that to say about us. Kim mentioned earlier a a research project called the Great Opportunity. Uh, we came across it a couple months ago, uh, and it it does talk about um, the reality in which our country is in, and we can translate this to to Portland very very quickly. Um, but what it is is it's a it's a research project that was started by um, was funded by a Christian uh, research organization, and um, they hired a, a, a team to do this, and they and they um, took a look at the. Uh, religious affiliation in the united states over time effectively how the american church is doing in creating lasting fruit i mean how are we doing in making disciples who who last in our our current age and in the future we've taken data from many different surveys and taking into account fertility mortality and immigration and looked ahead over the next 30 years the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of america It's the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of this country. Even in the most optimistic scenarios, Christian affiliation in the U.S. shrinks dramatically. And in our base case, over 1 million youth, at least nominally in the church today, will choose to leave each year for the next three decades. 35 million youth raised in families that call themselves Christians will say that they are not by 2050. There's no amount of rhetoric, or intelligence, or creativity, or craftiness, or charisma that changes that. But, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, both a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That we actually come saying what we've been talking about for the last number of weeks. Jesus, have have my heart. Holy Spirit, I'm in this place. Where is it that you want to direct me? God, you've got to show up and do something that I can't orchestrate, plan, or create on my own power. But would you show up and do what only you can do? And would you reach people that seem unreachable, Would you reach people who have never even considered you, who laugh at the name of Jesus and who consider the Bible fake news? Would you do something that we're not capable of doing? Would you show up and work? And would that be our prayer, not only for ourselves, but would it start with us, but then would it extend beyond us? As we look ahead as the statistics and the the challenges of living for Jesus in our city, and we talked about this a number of weeks ago if you were at our our, uh, leading core vision night that we did is that we see the trajectory of our city and, and where it's going. And we see not only great challenge, but significant opportunity to stand up and say, Jesus, we want to live for you here, and we want to see other people come to know you. One of the things that we're, we're doing as a, as a church to step into this uh, is, and we talked about this last June at our partner's party, uh, is that as we look ahead and as we look as a, as a, as a church family, and look at ourselves as a whole, and look into the future, one of the great opportunities that we have is to disciple the youngest among us, and to say, hey, we want to invest significantly, and not just invest in the youngest alone, but to invest in us that are our parents, that are parenting as, as single moms and single dads, and as teams together, as moms and dads together, as grandparents who are raising kids, any of us that are raising kids in this city, of how to do that really well, considering that we're living in a digital Babylon, and there's a constant and intensifying fight for our identity as followers of Jesus, we announced last uh, last June that we, in the fall, we're going to begin searching for for somebody to join our staff team, and so um, we're we're well along that that process. and And actually, in the next couple of weeks, we're we're looking at um, wrapping up a, a search process with a uh, a, a pastor that's potentially going to come on staff with us. And um, a number of you will get a chance to uh, to meet him in the next couple of weeks as we wind down that decision. Um, but adding another pastor to our team that's specifically gonna invest in the lives of children and families is a key next step for us. As we look at our kids, as we look at our middle school students, as we look at our high school students, as we talked about today as our college students, we have a unique opportunity to invest in the next generation of followers of Jesus. And not to do it just in, in ways that we can come up, but to, to do it on our, on our knees in a way that says, God, you've gotta show up. Will you show up in power and equip us as parents, equip us as a church Thank you for giving us a multi-generational church where we actually have those that have lived longer and have raised kids and are empty nesters and have made mistakes and had great victories and successes that can turn around and say, this is what it's like to live for Jesus in the here and now. This is what it's like to parent. This is what it's like to invest in the next generation. We've got parents that can turn and and look at our kids and and raise them. We need to stop and and take note that there's a, a university It's a Lutheran university founded on Jesus Christ that's closing its doors after 115 years in our city. There's a church that's closing its doors after 91 years in our city that has launched things like Skate Church and Multnomah University and Trout Creek Bible Camp that are closing its doors in our cities in this month, in two months from now. We have a growing and increasing and intensifying opportunity to live for Jesus in our city, and to make sacrifices together collectively, to invest in the next generations, to say, what would it be like if Portland wasn't known just for being weird and wild and experimental and progressive, but was was known for radically following Jesus in a day and age where more and more cities are turning away from Jesus. The Corinth was significantly and radically influenced because Paul said, I'm not gonna come and try to impress you or, or say something that, that convinces you just in your mind, but I'm gonna give you the only thing when everything else is stripped away that I have to give you, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes on to say this. I need to, I need to wrap this up, but I wanna read these last few verses. He goes on and says this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, who is everyone who comes to know Jesus. But not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. We declare the mystery of God that he's revealing now. Now, now, I mean, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, listen to this, what no eye has seen what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. And just so you know there, it, we, we miss it in English, but Paul's talking about our hearts. It it says mind there. There's two words for mind. One is noose, the other is cardia. Noose means just the intellect. Cardia means the heart of who we are, the core of who we are. Paul says cardia here, our heart. And it doesn't mean conceived, it means... Has come into the heart. What has not yet come into the heart, the things God has prepared for those who love Him, that God's preparing in His power and His work of the Spirit to come into our very identity, the core of who we are. The last verse, verse 10 says this These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is at work moving as we pray every Sunday Spirit, would you work? Would you move? As we sing, Spirit, come and change us. That is what we say that we resolve to know nothing, but when everything else is stripped away, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that the Spirit is the one who has revealed that to us, and that he would continue to do so, so that we would live for him in a day and age that's becoming more and more challenging, to sift away through all the messages and all the mess, and say, with everything else swirling around Jesus, I cling to you, I need you. Would nothing else divide my heart? Would nothing else compete and move you out of this central place of my very being? In my very soul, I want to invite you to close your eyes with me. And as you do, would you hear this invitation that as we come to the table this morning, and the reason that we come to the table again and again and again, it's because we need this practice, we need this habit, we need this discipline of coming back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, there are other things that are beginning to squeeze you out, that there are other things that are beginning to push you out of the center of who I am. And so we come back and we take a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice and we say, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and you crucified. And so Jesus, in today, would you bring us back to you? Wherever we've walked to this week, wherever we've strayed to this week, wherever we've drifted, would you bring us back to an undivided heart that is wholly yours? And Holy Spirit, we cannot do that on our own. We need your power and your conviction and your comfort As we do that, as we come this morning back to you, would you grant us your grace and mercy? Would you put a smile on our face? And would you give us the courage to walk into our weeks as a light for you wherever you take us this week?